Amen. Thank you, Tillman, and thank you, choir. Good evening, everyone. We're so pleased that you're here. Tonight, I'm going to start a series on the minor prophets. I've called this series Musing on the Minor Prophets. The idea here, the purpose here is not to do any in-depth exposition at this time of all of the texts of the Minor Prophets. But to give us an overview and to see what are the important elements in each of the prophets and how they can speak to us today. Now, I've adapted some notes uh, from a classmate or a school associate from Dallas Theological Seminary, Jay Hampton Keithley, the third is his name. We've, I've sort of combined my notes with his because he has some diagrams and whatnot that's very easy to use. Now, the title, Minor Prophets, refer to the 12 books in the English Bible. 12 books in the English Bible that are called the Minor Prophets. It is said that this title probably originated around the time of the church father Augustine, somewhere in the 4th century, the early 4th century, when this title was first given to these 12 prophetic books. Now, they are only minor in the sense that they are shorter in length than the other prophets that are called major prophets. And the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, because of their length, their content. So when we use the term or the phrase minor prophet, it doesn't mean that they're less in importance or that they're secondary. It just simply means that they are shorter in content. Now in Old and New Testament times, the Old Testament was called the law and the prophets. Of course, later it came to be the law, the prophets, and the writings. And this title was given because it viewed the Old Testament from the standpoint of the divisions of the books at that time. But of course it included the law, the prophets, the writings, and it was constituted 24 books rather than the 39. That's because of the way that it was put together by the Jews at that time. For instance, there was no first and second kings and first and second chronicles and things like that. There was only one book. And the, uh, some of the prophetic books, like, not prophetic books, I'm sorry, but, uh, I meant poetic books, poetry. Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon's, and all of those type of things were sort of grouped together. So it was a 24-book division rather than the 39. And that's why they were put together in that fashion. Now, when we talk about the prophets, it's important for us to understand the reason for prophets. Why did prophets arise in Israel? It's very important for us to understand that. So I want to take some time right now. Now, when God gave the law to Israel, and remember, the law was seen as the constitution of Israel. It is the constitution upon which the nation of Israel was based. It was a guideline for their behavior and living. But when God gave Israel the law, he promised them at that time that if they would be obedient, they would come, to use his word, my own 
possession, a special people, a special treasure of his. Peter uses the phrase a peculiar people, meaning a unique people. They would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation among all the nations of the world. You must get this in your mind if you're going to understand the importance of Israel. God chose Israel out of all of the nations in existence at that time to be unique among the nations. And the law was given to bring that uniqueness about. Because no other country, no other nation had the kind of laws that were contained in uh, what we call the Ten Commandments and the other aspects of the law. This was to distinguish, to separate the people of Israel from all the nations of the world. But this could only come about if they followed the instructions of God. It could not happen if they continued to follow the practices of other nations. They could not continue the practices they brought out of Egypt, for instance. They could not continue the practices they would find in the land that they would enter and God called the promised land. They had to do things differently. That was the point. And so just before the people entered the promised land, the book of Deuteronomy was giving. What, is, what does Deuteronomy mean? Second giving of the law, really. In other words, he repeats the law to them to remind them of what was instituted when they gave the law in the first place. And he did two things before they entered the land. First, he condemned and prohibited divination. Divination is where people will go to trying to get help and guidance from the Spirit world all right and so this is what it says in Deuteronomy 18 when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations I want you to notice as we go through this because these principles apply to us as the people of God today we have to be different we have to be separate there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. This is child sacrifice. That was done. That's one of the reasons why the Canaanites, for instance, was to be wiped out completely. Because of this terrible sin, or one of them. There shall be not found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Or one who uses divination. One who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. All of these individuals and the practices here have to do with trying to get advice from the gods, from the stars, from, every, from horoscopes, you call it today. Christians should not be looking to the horoscope to give them direction for the day. You should not be looking to see what your sign is to tell you what to do or not to do. You should be different 
than the people who do. That's what this is about. As we go through this passage, you're going to see that professing Christians today continue to do the things of pagan nations. And there's no distinction, no difference at all. The Ouija board, palm readers, Wicca today. We have churches who invite those who are part of Wicca, the white riches, and would not to explain Wicca to the Christians to see what benefit they could get from Wicca. That's happening today. Excuse, you know, we got to know what they believe. We got to be liberal and open, listen to what other people have to say. God condemns it. And he condemns it harshly. Goes on to verse 12. For whoever does these things. Now look in your Bible now. I want you to be sure you see this in the Bible. Because I didn't make this up. And I can say this all the time. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. You mean if I look at horoscope and I look for it every day. And I go with my sign. I'm According to this passage. Now, don't come here and say, Pastor Lee said it. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. That's the nations, the people who do it. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, Listen to those who practice witchcraft and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. That makes them different. That separates them from the people around. And that's what the law is all about. To teach God's people what it means to be set apart from that which is sinful. But now, how was God's will for the people then to be known? They figured if we go to these things, we could know what God wants us to do. How were they to know what saith the Lord? Well, he answers that question specifically in the following verses in an extended passage. And I'm going to read it because it's the word of God. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. Moses was the mouthpiece of God. Remember when he was first called, I can't talk. I can't speak. He says, okay, get Aaron. The message will come to you, to Aaron. Aaron will be my mouth. That's what preachers are supposed to be. The mouthpiece for God. Not for themselves, but for God. That's why false teachers are condemned so harshly by God. Because they claim to speak for God, but they're speaking against God. That's using the name of the Lord in vain. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more lest I die. You remember the story? 
Law was given and boy, they had fires and earthquakes and they had everything around that mountain and these people were scared to death of God. They did not hear him no more in that fashion. Verse 17, and the Lord said to me at that time, they have spoken well, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command you. God choosing a man to use as his mouthpiece to speak to the people of God. You say, why didn't God speak to all of them at one time himself? He could have done it. That was not his choice. He chooses individuals. Verse 19. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name... I myself will require it of him. In other words, they got to answer to me. If he speaks in my name and don't, they don't listen to him, they don't have to answer to him. They got to answer to me, God says. That's why when I read and preach the word of God and I know I'm preaching the word, no matter how difficult, harsh it might be, you got a problem with God, not with me, if you don't like it. That's what he's saying here. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And that is just as true as when he said to Adam, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. If a prophet says he speaks in my name and he does not and he was not sent by me, he is not speaking my words, he will die. Verse 21, And you may say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? That's a good question. People are not asking that question today when they listen. How do I know that that's the word of God? They just take whatever the preacher says. Notice what he says. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. I just read recently of a preacher that we looked at, not we, some listened to on the radio. He made a prediction last year that the Lord was coming uh, two or three years ago. He didn't come. He's still on the air. He made a prediction that he's coming in 2012. Many people are listening to him. Don't be surprised if he dies. Why? Because he's proclaiming that in the name of the Lord. If it doesn't come true, God could kill him. You say, Pastor, you rough. Mm -mm, it's God. I'll kill you. If you say, I say something and I didn't say it. That's why every time I come to this pulpit, I come with fear. Because I have to answer to God. That's why James tells the people, don't let everyone rush to be a teacher. Why? Because your condemnation is greater. People think I love to preach. I like to preach. I enjoy preaching. I scared to death. Paul says that when he preached, it was like an aroma of death to some, an aroma of life to others. 
That's why I don't skylock when it comes to the word of God. Notice now, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. I love that. You got a lot of presumptuous preachers today. Some of you think I might be presumptuous. Well, don't be afraid of me. But this word presumptuous here doesn't mean just speaking out in a little... This means to stand up and say, I am speaking in the name of God and you know you're not. Now, this revelation from the biblical origin and reason for the prophetic office is important for us to understand. Prophets were to be the mouth of God himself. Their words were to be his word. In addition, God gave them specific promises and warnings. And again, if you go through this chapter, or actually Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, you will see God spelling out the blessings and curses. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. If you do this, you will live. If you do this, you will die. For obedience, there was blessing. For disobedience, there was cursing. And that is still true today in principle. But we like to go to our daily bread and look at all the good promises. Not ones that require something for us to do in order to get the blessing. So then, how did the prophets fit into all of this, into this picture? They would come along to the people and say, Because you have broken the covenant with God, the covenant curses have fallen upon you, or are about to fall upon you, or if you keep the word of God, then this land again will produce its fruit. In other words, they were to remind the people of the significance and the content of the covenant. And what would happen if they don't keep the covenant? And what would happen if they do? And when they saw the people going away from the obedience to the covenant, they would come and bring warnings. That was the job of the prophet. That's the nature of a covenant. Rewards for compliance, penalties for not complying. But now, the prophets did not just proclaim gloom and doom. They also proclaim the message of salvation and coming glory. And when you study the prophets, you'll find these things mixed together in the prophetic books that we have. Warnings and curses and blessings, but the promises of glory to come. And some of the major things, the literary features, we call it, of the minor prophets, you'll see in them warning of impending judgment because of the nation's sinfulness, a description in detail many times of the sin, thirdly, a description of the coming judgment, fourthly, a call for repentance, and fifth, a promise for future deliverance. You will see that in all of the prophets. You'll see that in the minor prophets as we go through them in the coming days. So that has to do with the nature of the prophetic office and why it's so important and what the message is all about. Now let's take a look, because this is a survey of their order in the Bible. 
you have a chart, and you also have it up on the screen. I'm doing this because I wanted you to become familiar with the Word of God. The Word of God is the most important thing you could involve your time for study in, the Word of God. And I hope this will help you to get an overview of these books. Now, in the Bible, the Bible that we have, the order chronologically is like we have it on the left side of the screen. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. But now if you look to the right, you'll see the historical order. Now, for, we'll see that in the beginning. For the first few, Jonah, Amos especially, and maybe Joel, there's some disagreement as to the actual timing. We are following the more, more generally accepted one in our study, and I'll explain it as we go along. But if you see Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, if you look to the other side, you'll see that they are not in order chronologically in the, new, in the, in the Bible. However, in our teaching on this, we will do it chronologically. In other words, rather than starting with Hosea in our overview, we will start with the book of Jonah. All right. So here they are. I'll just go down the historical order. Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, Joel. Now these are all in order in the English Bible. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's the order that we have there. Now the diagram that I gave you is a helpful one, except the bottom of the dates. Uh, is a, might be a little off in my opinion because if you'll see there on your chart they have um, Jonah if you look for the dates in 850 I really believe that that's too late I believe he's more in the 750 area but he, they do have it right here where you see Jonah right and then Joel and Amos Joel and Amos were uh, contemporary with Jonah in some of the years. In other words, Joel looked like he was contemporary with Jonah in the second part of his life, the latter part of his life. Amos was contemporary with Joel in his. But they might have been preaching in different areas. One prophet in the northern kingdom, one in the southern kingdom, one at different times. Now, if you look way to the right of your chart, you'll see Daniel. He's a major prophet, and he says return of the exiles. So another way of dividing the prophets is to look at what we call pre-exilic prophets and post-exilic prophets. In other words, those who preached before the captivity and those who preached afterwards. That's how it's divided there. If you look way down to the end, again on the right side, you'll see Haggai, Zechariah. They were preaching around the time the temple was rebuilt. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah, was, they were at that time as well. And I hope this chart helps you. We'll be looking at it as we go through our study together. It helps you to see uh, how some of the uh, ministry of the prophets really overlapped with one another. Some of the minor prophets were preaching at the same time that the major prophets were preaching. For instance, look at Isaiah. Hosea and Micah was in during his time as well, at least some of it for Hosea. 
The same thing with Jeremiah. You'll see that when Jeremiah was preaching, Habakkuk, Obadiah, uh, was also preaching, and Jeremiah started right at the end of Zephaniah's time and so on. Look at Daniel the same way. Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, they were all major prophets. Obadiah, Habakkuk, they were all preaching at the same time. Well, somewhat different, years different, but generally in the same period of time, addressing the same situations. That's why a lot of the situations will seem similar in the, in the, in the prophets because they're addressing the same situation. Now, we are going to be looking at the book of Jonah as our first introduction here. And I'll just go through the first part of it. We have up on the screen a map that shows you just a little bit, gives you an idea of where Nineveh, Nineveh was and where Jerusalem and Joppa was. So you'll see, you remember, uh, God gave the command to, to uh, Jonah in Jerusalem, in Israel, to go where? To go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction. He went to Joppa and he went in the sea to go further away. But God turned the ship around. You know, and so you see, that just gives you some idea. He went into the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria is one of the most vicious uh, nations in the world at that time. And we'll talk about that as we go along. But just let me give you some quick notes on the book of Jonah. The author is called in the book Jonah, the son of Amittai. He was a prophet from Galilee in the northern kingdom of Israel. You'll see that in the very first verse of the first chapter. If you look, I want you to turn to Jonah to see that. And Jonah is a little different from most of the other minor prophets. You will not find Jonah giving too many prophecies. All of the others, uh, when I say, I mean giving prophetic messages other than uh, the, the message of judgment to the kingdom. So he stands out from the minor prophets. All of the other prophets are dealing with the sins of the nations of Israel, primarily, although you'll find them giving judgments on the nations around too. But this one, Jonah, is directly towards Nineveh, as we'll see. The date, as I said, that he preached was somewhere between 793, 753 before Christ. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, he's seen to be involved during the reign of Jehoboam, the second of Israel. That's why most scholars believe that he's first in line of the prophets, because it corresponds with Jehoboam's reign, the second in Israel. The title of the book is Jonah. Jonah means dove. It gives the eye of peace, but that's the meaning uh, of, the na of the name Jonah, dove. This is just an overview. Next week we'll go into detail a little bit more. Jonah demonstrates that the God of the Hebrews has concern for the whole world. Secondly, that he is sovereign over nature and all human affairs. These are some of the significant aspects of the book of Jonah. It focuses on the fact that God is sovereign, sovereign in his judgment, sovereign in his redemption. He judges who he desires to judge, and he redeems who he decides to redeem. He's the God of the nature. You'll see him controlling the sea, the fish, the plants. You'll see him in control of people as well as of nature. 
God is a sovereign God. Jonah then demonstrates that salvation is of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 9, that phrase is used. And that God's gracious offer of salvation extends to all who repent and turn to him. In fact, this is probably the most significant uh, point of the book of Jonah, right here. That God extends salvation to all who repent and turn to him. When we get in this book, we'll see one of the greatest uh, evangelistic campaign, if you want, ever. The response was tremendous. And yeah, when the message was finally given to repent, everyone repented, even the donkeys. The only person who didn't repent was Jonah. Everyone, everything else repented, except the preacher. Now, some of my own titles for this book, Jonah, is Fleeing from God's Will. It gives a story of someone who tries to get away from what they know God is telling him. Fleeing. I call it the flighty preacher. The reluctant evangelist or the reluctant missionary. Or the missionary draft resistor. All of these themes give some idea of this book. God speaks to one who's supposed to be his servant, but his servant does not want to obey. The reason why is significant. We'll see that in a moment. But he doesn't want to obey. But God doesn't let him go scot-free. God goes after him. And he does everything in his power to bring that preacher back to himself. Now, the book also demonstrates how our prejudices like Jonah's prejudice against these people sometimes distort a sense of our own importance in the sight of God. In other words, Jonah recognized that as a Jew, he was a special person from a special nation. That caused him, rather than to be thankful, to be prejudiced, prejudiced against other nations. Today we would say he was a racist because he did not want these people to be blessed the way Israel was blessed and so he ran away from God we have people doing that today people who think that they are specially blessed they have special privileges and people who do not have those privileges start to join in with them they don't want them to be there so they run away they go someplace they do other things that's the book of Jonah that's Jonah himself and God comes after them. And you'll see what he does as we go along. But when we behave in that fashion, the will of God is hindered in our lives. The will of God cannot be completed in the life of a prejudiced person who knows that they are sinning against God. Cannot. And so the overall lesson of Jonah is to show that God is sovereign in his compassion. In chapters 1 and 2, God's compassion is demonstrated to a disobedient but repentant prophet Jonah. In other words, you'll see that he does turn around. God reaches out to him in his compassion anyway. In chapter 3, God's compassion is demonstrated towards a pagan but repentant people, the Ninevites. In chapter 4, God's compassion is illustrated to the obedient but heartless prophet Jonah.
That's generally what those chapters are about. A key word in the book of Jonah is repeated several times, and that's the word prepared. He prepared a great fish. He prepared a wind. He prepared the tempest. He prepared a god. He prepared the worm. He prepared the east wind. God is preparing things and people uh, to do his will. Preparation, then, is a key word in the text. A key idea is revival. Revival is a key idea in the book of Jonah. Now, there are several verses that are regarded as key verses. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we have these words. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Now, here's the phrase. Salvation is from the Lord. That's a key verse, key phrase. Another key verse is chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do that. That's a passage that has brought about a lot of discussion on the part of theologians. God changing his mind. God repenting. Isn't that interesting? And we'll talk about it a little bit when we get to that chapter. God changes his mind. And rather than condemning the people, he blesses them and they repent it. That's in keeping with the covenant he made with Israel. If you repent, I will forgive. Verse, chapter 4, verse 2 is also a key verse. And he prayed to the Lord and said, this is Jonah, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. This is another verse we're going to have a lot of interesting discussion with. Because Jonah is saying to God, God, the reason why I didn't obey you and go to Nineveh was because I know you were a compassionate God. And now I know if I preached, that they repented, you'll forgive. And I don't want you to forgive them. I don't want you to show compassion toward them. And so I am not going to do what you say because I know who you are. A God of compassion. The third chapter stands out as a key chapter because, as I mentioned earlier, it records one of the greatest revivals in history. The whole nation turned to God, from the king down to the animals. Amazing. And we're going to see why that had happened. Now, as we go through the book of John, uh, to the, through the prophets, we want to see Christ in these books as well. And through Jonah, I believe that Christ is portrayed in his resurrection. You remember, Jesus himself uses Jonah's coming out of the whale as an illustration of his being in the grave for three days, three nights. Remember that? And so I believe that this story of Jonah 
presents for us the principle, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It also presents Jonah as a prophet to the nations. Although, of course, Jonah was reluctant. But God, Jesus Christ is also a prophet. He's a prophet, he's a king, he's a priest. He's a prophet to the nations as well. And so I believe that in Jonah's life, Jesus Christ is seen as a savior and Lord of the nations of the world. God's purpose in his dealing with Jonah was to reveal to him what it took to bridge the gap between knowledge and obedience. And this is going to be our focus in the book of Jonah next week, Lord willing. Jonah teaches us how to bridge the gap between knowledge and obedience. Jonah knew the will of God, but he didn't obey it. Many of us know the will of God for our lives through the word of God, and we don't obey it. We could see from Jonah how God responds to those who do not deliberately, intentionally obey his will. The gap between knowledge and obedience. In other words, what does it take to have the mind, the intellect, move our feet? Is it enough to know? Or is there a connection between knowing and doing that God says is important to us as Christians? In a situation in which we are constantly and consistently being exposed to the word of God, the lessons in the book of Jonah is some lessons we need to learn today to enable us to get our feet moving based on the knowledge we know from the word of God. And so I believe that God is going to speak to us in many ways through, these, through the studies of the minor prophets. And I trust that between now and next week, you'll read the book of Jonah. Come with questions if you want. Because we want this to be a learning experience, not just a preaching one. Read the book of Jonah. By the time we finish the series, I'm praying that all of us would have read these 12 prophets, the minor prophets. When we get the word in our hearts and our minds, I believe then God will enable us to change our lives as well. Amen? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that as we study these prophets, these mouthpieces of yours, that you'll help us to heed your word through them. Help us, we pray, not to be like Jonah, who refused to obey your will, but help us instead, our Father, to recognize that because you are the Lord of this universe, the God of the nations, that because you are such a compassionate and forgiving God, it is your desire to bless all those who repent of their sins and turn to you. Grant our Father that we might be mouthpieces of yours in the real sense when we proclaim the good news of the gospel to the sinners around us so that they might come to place faith in Christ. And as we go through these books, may we see Jesus Christ in the scriptures that speak of him. And all of God's people said, Amen.